You know, sometimes discerning whether a riddle is a riddle is a riddle. Now, are you confused? Well, good. That's what riddles are for. And the test of a good riddle is one that you can't figure out. You know, kids love to stump adults with riddles. And sometimes it really is hard to give a good answer because we can't find a riddle in the riddle. What they're saying just makes no sense at all. Well, Solomon apparently included riddles among his proverbs, but I'm not sure we can always tell which is which. The book of Proverbs begins this way. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise, and their riddles. A proverb, a figure, a riddle. What's, what's the difference? Well, according to my Funk and Wagnalls, a proverb is a pithy saying, especially one condensing the wisdom of experience, an enigmatic saying, a figure of speech, is an expression that intentionally deviates from or abandons altogether the normal, literal meanings of words so as to create a more vivid or fanciful effect, as in simile metaphor. A riddle is a puzzling question stated as a problem to be solved by clever ingenuity, a conundrum. All are designed to make you think, but riddles can vary in specific intent. Some are simply word puzzles to entertain. Some are formulated to test your intelligence. And others are structured to teach a truth that needs to be thought about deeply. The only riddle in the Bible identified as such was one that was proposed to entertain wedding guests, but came with a financial challenge. We read of it in Judges 14. Then Samson said to them, let me now propound a riddle to you. If you will indeed tell it to me within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. But if you are unable to tell me, then you shall give me 30 linen wraps and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, propound your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. Now, that doesn't sound much like a riddle to me. But it was, without a doubt, a puzzling statement. And you can read the account for yourself if you want to know the answer 
and how it all turned out. As we noted, Samson's riddle is the only riddle identified as such in the Bible. But just hours before his crucifixion, it appears that Jesus told a riddle to his disciples. We might even call it the riddle of the resurrection. It's in the 16th chapter of John. A little while, and you will no longer behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of his disciples therefore said to one another, What is this thing he is telling us? A little while, and you will not behold me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father? And so they were saying, What is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he's talking about. The disciples made it clear they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. A little while, and you will no longer behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me. It made no sense to them. Earlier in the evening, Jesus told them that he was going to the Father, and they didn't understand it. Now they were really confused. He did say he had more to tell them, but they wouldn't be able to bear it. So they would have to wait for the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to reveal what else they might need to know. But at that moment, that didn't help. Now, the real conundrum, at least for them. You know, even if I hadn't suggested we call this enigmatic statement the riddle of the resurrection, you probably guessed what he was talking about. He was talking about his death and resurrection. You know, looking back is always easier than looking ahead. Now, some theologians do suggest Jesus may have had other things in mind as well, such as the day of Pentecost or the second coming, but most agree that a little while refers to the short time before his death and the three days between his death and resurrection. But why the riddle? If Jesus wanted to tell his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection, why not just state it plainly? Perhaps he put it in the form of a riddle to get them to think about it rather than just react to it. What do you think they would have done if he had said, In a couple of hours, while praying in the garden, Judas is going to lead a band of Jewish leaders and soldiers to arrest me. They're going to drag me before several kangaroo courts, beat me, condemn me, and crucify me. By this time tomorrow, I'll be dead, and you won't be able to see me, because I'll be sealed in a tomb. (laughs) Chances are, if he had told them that on that night, they would have fought against it. They would have equipped themselves with more than the two swords they had. They would have tried to keep Jesus from going to the garden. They would have been ready for a fight and would have done everything possible to protect their teacher. Even telling them about the resurrection wouldn't have made a difference 
They would have thought he was just talking about leaving them and going back to the Father, whatever that meant. Jesus knew better than to go over the details of the next three days with them on the night those events were to begin. But he had told them earlier exactly what was going to happen. Shortly after feeding the 5,000 and Peter confessed him to be the Christ, Jesus had said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And before going to Jerusalem, Jesus had taken the twelve aside and said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. He had told them exactly what was going to happen. But the reality of what he had said had apparently not sunk in. He did want them to know what the future held, but now was not the time to make sure they understood everything. His goal for now was to simply prepare them for the next three days. It was obvious, however, that they didn't understand what was coming. So Jesus did have to elaborate just a bit. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said, A little while, and you will not behold me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned to joy. Jesus knew they were discussing the riddle and didn't understand it. He wanted to tell them more, but didn't want to go into all the details again. So he simply elaborated by telling how the coming events would affect them emotionally to help them prepare for it. Something was going to happen in a little while that would cause them to weep and lament. They were going to experience deep, deep sorrow. The New English Bible says they would be plunged into grief. The world, however, would rejoice. And the world, of course, refers to the world controlled by the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air. Satan himself. What was about to happen would bring rejoicing to the enemies of God and sorrow to the friends of God. Their sorrow, however, would be short-lived. In a little while, it would be turned into joy. And the words used indicate that the very thing that would cause sorrow would become a reason for joy. He wasn't merely saying that after the bad thing happened, something good would happen. He was saying that something that was bad would actually be turned into something that would bring great joy. 
What could that be? The cross. The cross. An instrument of death would be changed into an instrument of life. You know, it's been said that wearing a cross is like wearing an electric chair around your neck. (laughs) But that's not true. The cross is no longer seen as an instrument of death. The cross has become a symbol of the price that was paid for our eternal life. The thing that would cause sorrow would become the very thing that would bring joy. The cross would become something that they would cherish and cling to. Something that would bring them joy. Now, some might think it a stretch to suggest something that causes sorrow can be turned into something that brings joy, but Jesus illustrated that possibility with an experience that is close to all of us. Whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too now have sorrow. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. They were going through the birth pangs of something new. And for the moment, it would be hard, as hard as giving birth to a child. Now, from what I've observed, giving birth is no picnic. I've been in the delivery room twice as a father and just outside the delivery room several times as a grandfather. But as I'm sure every woman here would be ready to point out, I was not the one who gave birth. (laughs) And for that, I'm very grateful. (laughs) But I was there. And the disciples, while not being the one who gave birth to the new covenant, would be there. And they would share in the pain of the process. And it would be painful. No one would question that there is travail painful, laborious effort in childbirth. But when a child is born, the anguish of birth is quickly forgotten. The contractions that cause pain have brought forth a baby in birth. Sorrow is turned into joy. And the same would be true of the delivery of the new covenant. There would be sorrow in the transition from the demands of law to the gift of grace. But once it finally arrived, the sorrow would disappear, replaced by joy. They were going to lose Jesus for a little while, but they would see him again. And it would be well worth their temporary sorrow. Through their temporary loss, they were going to gain the joy of his presence for all eternity. He was going to leave them for a little while, 
to pay the price necessary for their being with him eternally. Their temporary sorrow would be turned into a joy that no one could take away from them. And on that day, they would understand the riddle. They would have their answer. And in that day, you will ask me no question. Truly, truly I say to you, if you shall ask the Father for anything, he will give it to you in my name. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. After the resurrection, the riddle would make sense. They would understand what it meant. And there would be no need to ask Jesus about it. In fact, in that day, the period following the resurrection, there would no longer be a need to ask Jesus any questions. And that would be true for two reasons. The Holy Spirit would instruct them. He would make certain they knew everything they needed to know when they needed to know it. And from that day on, they could go directly to the Father. Access to the Father would be free and open and direct because of what Jesus did on the cross. Anything they would ask in the name of Jesus on the basis of his merit and for his sake in keeping with his will would be given to them. They would have an open line with their creator, the line that had been blocked by sin would be restored by the cross. It would have been useless for the disciples to ask for anything in the name of Jesus until after the crucifixion. Because only after the price for sin had been paid would that line be opened. Only then could their joy be made full. They didn't understand all this while going through the time of sorrow. But they did hang on to their faith in him. And in just a short time, it all made sense. Now, besides benefiting eternally from what Jesus did on the cross, as did the disciples, we can learn from the process they had to go through. Jesus had said some things they didn't understand. And they were going to experience some things that wouldn't make sense. But the answers did come. And their joy was made full. They were given free access to God. And in that, joy was indeed made full. Through Christ, we too have been given free access to our Heavenly Father. We can come before him with anything. And if we ask, Jesus says, we will receive. We may not get all the answers we seek 
at the moment we seek them, but our joy will be made full. If we ask and do as told, we will be given a relationship with the one who has all the answers. And we will be given the assurance that someday everything will be clear. If we've entered into relationship with the Father through the Son, we can rest securely in the fact that he has paid the price for our salvation and there is really nothing to worry about. He knows what's going on and he is in control. We may not understand everything at the moment, and life may still hold a few riddles for us. But he's got the answers. And someday, everything will make sense. For now, all we must do is trust and obey. And if we'll do that, We'll be happy in Jesus, and our joy will be made full in the morning. Can you trust him? Can you trust him? I pray you can.